Hi, I'm Neil, and you're listening to The Whaler Podcast, a series where we sit down for a fireside chat with luminaries from the creative industry to learn how they got to where they are, how they feel about the current advertising landscape, and what keeps them up at night. In this episode, I'm joined by Phil Thomas, the CEO of Essential Events. Phil has a particularly unique vantage point over the creative industry, having spent a decade as the CEO of Cannes Lions International Festival of Creativity. Phil, thank you very much for joining me today on the You're podcast. very welcome. So I think it'd be interesting to start off, you were telling me that when you first started out, you were um, learning to be a photographer. Yeah, I started, I did photography at college, um, realized that, quite quickly realized that I wasn't good enough to make it professionally, because oh, no. <laughs> you've got to be exceptionally good, it's very competitive. Um, it was good that you had that ruthlessness in <laughs> yeah. yourself to, to assess yeah. that. I mean, I started writing, uh, to go with the pictures I was taking, I started writing articles and I realized I was actually better, better at writing than I was at photography. So I went into journalism um, and magazine journal- journalism specifically and ended up editing Empire, which is a film magazine, uh, running FHM, which is the men's magazine of old. Um, and... Uh, that was my kind of career path, really. And was that something that you'd always imagined? Uh, I knew that at school I was not going to go the normal route because I wasn't particularly successful at school. I had more of a creative bent. Um, and I wanted to... I was always very interested in creativity and expressing myself in a variety of different ways. And when I found writing, I realised that I could actually make a living out of that. That was reasonably good at it. And so how did you progress from Empire to FHM to then getting involved with Can Lion? Well, I was on the magazine side for quite a long time, and it was really during the heyday of magazines. Mm. And then, of course, this thing called the internet came along, and around about, I, I was running a business in Australia in the, about around about year 2000, and I realized at that point I couldn't really see how magazines were going to get their way through, you know, with any kind of success, get their way through the disruption that was coming. And so this was back in 2000. Yeah, between 2000 and 2005, 2006. Uh, so we acquired Can Lions in 2005 and I was kind of around and about the place. Um, they were looking for someone to lead it and I thought events were more robust than magazines so I decided to go into events and so while it's slightly off topic it would just be fascinating to know how do you view how magazines are are living and operating today in the digital era like that kind of prediction that you made back in 2000 2005 how do you think they've Uh, well I think I think some of them I think there are there's there's room for two types of magazines quite specialist um, magazines that don't sell very many copies but are really loved by their readers you know cycling magazines and running magazines and those kind of things and then top end very glamorous glitzy magazines like your Vogue's and your Harper's Bazaar's and things like that will always have a place because they're offering something that you can't really get anywhere else mm. it's the middle one so FHM's a good example Lad Bible came along well FHM invested hun- millions and millions of pounds into its digital offering and just couldn't make the couldn't make the switch. Lad Bible comes along with a completely different view, like a digital view of the world. Yeah. And effectively blows away a brand that at one time was valued at more than five hundred million pounds. <laughs> so I think 
I think it's settling down now a bit, and I think magazines have definitely got a future. It's just a bit of a smaller future than it was uh, in the heydays of the 90s. I guess an interesting point in that, how do you think FHM could have defended itself from something like Lab Bible? Do you think it was possible for them to do something like that? Or actually, do you think in these markets with changing opportunities, it takes new startups coming along? Yeah, I, I think as we've found over and over again, I think the big problem is you've got legacy revenues that you're trying to protect. So in the case of FHM, uh, you know, there were single pages of advertising that were yielding 35,000, 40,000 pounds. Um, the revenue, the advertising revenue is really, really huge. So you've got to try and protect that on the one hand while being prepared to disrupt it on the other, which hmm. is extremely difficult to do. And despite... A lot of clever people thinking about it and a lot of investment in it, getting away from that fundamental tension was the basic problem. You've got Lad Bible come in, they've got no, leg no legacy revenues to protect, and they just do their own thing and they completely disrupt it. But, you know, looking back, could FHM have been Lad Bible? Yeah, there's no real reason why not, other than the fact that it's almost impossible to shift your attention away from the legacy revenues you've got. It's fascinating, isn't it? It'll be that protection of the legacy revenues, but also Lad Bible probably didn't know the success or the potential that it had and the size that it could become. So it took almost having nothing to lose in starting it. That's a very good point because obviously FHM.com had to be huge and it had to be successful and it had to drive uh, big revenues. But it's a very good point you make. You know, Lad Bible, just a couple of guys in their garage, you know, who cares? Let's just see what happens. And it's a completely different mindset. Because if FHM knew what Lad Bible was going to become, then they'd have much less fear about protecting. Yeah. It's the kind of risk reward yeah. of, of yeah. new things. I mean, if they'd have known that it was one day going to close and quite quick. I mean, you know, when I was running FHM the late 90s, we literally could not print enough copies. And we were selling a million copies a month. I mean, it's incredible now. It doesn't even exist anymore. That is amazing to think. So actually, I was thinking it's off topic. But actually, <laughs> potentially it's not. And it's just seeing these trends part, within things. Yeah, it's part of the, all the changes in the media landscape, for yeah. sure. So we were chatting before, and you'd said to me that you felt that there'd been more change within the creative landscape in the last year than you'd seen in, in 10 years. And do you think... Actually, there may be some repetition of what was seen with FHM there. And are you going to see some people trying to protect the revenue rather than take grass new opportunities? Yeah, I think uh, that's a huge question. It's sort of where do you start, really? But I think the thing that's changing in our, there are two fundamental things that are changing in our industry at the moment. Um, the, it, well, there are more than two, but they're fundamentally two really big things that are happening. The first is um, a kind of shift in what marketers need to understand about creativity and data. So technology and data um, melding with creativity and how you can bring those two things together is a huge challenge um, and one that marketers really have to get their heads around. And that's kind of been precipitated or, or has been um, linked to lots of different new types of suppliers providing marketers with solutions. So there are lots of examples of that. Guy, you know, companies like yours, um, content creating companies, 
um, and perhaps the most pro- high profile are the other consultancies who are now coming in and, and really coming at it from a slightly different perspective. Because the mar- so the modern marketer now, it's not just about comms. I think even five years ago, it was largely about what kind of advertising we're going to do, what kind of PR strategy we're going to have, what's our comms strategy, broadly speaking. These days, there's a there needs to be a real understanding of user experience, particularly on the digital side, but also the physical side. So the whole user experience journey and how companies can help marketers to, to understand that and improve their user experience. So everything from organizational change to, change to digital transformation, all the way through to comms, it's a very complex landscape. And I think that's, uh, that's re- reasonably new. One thing I've been toying with, and I'd be interested in your opinion on this, so I think that part of what's driven everything is all these increased channels through which you reach people with, and the fact that, you know, everyone listening to this is probably going to be consuming different content from the person next to them over the course of a day. And so for brands to maybe infiltrate, infiltrate is the wrong word, but for brands to infiltrate into people's attention, you've got to get them in these different devices and at these different moments, consuming these different channels that they're in. And I guess what's changed is that previously you could do, you know, four big campaigns a year, spend a long time on them, do big hero advertising, big endorsements, really great stuff. And that would kind of set culture and that would get people's attention. That obviously still happens to a degree today, but now much more is kind of bottom up and people having to kind of get at people at the moments where it's relevant across all their different channels. And I kind of see that as one of the major challenges that brands have, because to your point about communication strategy, you kind of can't have one overarching strategy that's going to hit all those different channels and all those different moments. Yeah, again, that com- that complexity makes it even more difficult. And because of the dispersion of the channels and the the fact that consumer attention is so fleeting, mm. you've not only got the decisions about the channels that you're going to use, you've also got to change your view of what it is you're putting out there. And the other big shift that we've seen in the last few years, uh, we've seen a number of big shifts at can. One of them is the shift towards entertainment, sort of away from pure advertising. We renamed the festival the Festival of Creativity. That was about six years ago. It used to be called the Advertising Festival. Right. Um, and we did that because we could see that there was a landscape coming that really advertising was only just one small part of that landscape. And um, brands now have to understand not only what's the channel I'm going to put this out on, but how is this going to be entertainment? How, how is this actually going to add to the to the enjoyment of our customers and how is it going to really add to their experience and that then leads on to this big debate at the moment I was in a meeting the other day and um, uh, it was with a consultant and they were saying there is absolutely no reason why every brand cannot be a publisher effectively an entertainment company and I actually don't subscribe to that and the reason I don't subscribe to that is because If every brand was an entertainment company, there are not enough hours on the planet Mm. multiplied by the number of people to consume all that content. So forget about capabilities and whether any brand can stand test against the BBC or 
Fox or Warner Brothers, these people who really do create great entertainment. So forget even forgetting the capabilities, there just isn't enough time for people to consume it all. So I think it's a red herring for brands to think, well, the future is that I'm effectively going to become an, an entertainment company. But what they do have to do is make sure that what they're producing is relevant, interesting and absorbing for the, for the customers. I was at a, an event as well. I think last week it was a Facebook event uh, with the guy who's the head of entertainment there. He was saying that, for example, Hollywood over the course of time, I think it was, I don't remember the time frame, maybe it was like seven years ago, there were 360 feature films or pieces of content out there that's now 720 mm. in a year and that's the point there's, there's just more and he said the scary thing is that previously there was maybe 12 with a hundred million pound budget there's now over 30 with a hundred million pound budget so you know now to get inside the top 10 isn't even just about spending a fortune and an amount of money out there to to create that and so that fight for attention people have just thrown more content out there which doesn't quite work yeah absolutely but then to counter that, is it that because we've all got more personalized feeds of content that we have, by there being more choice out there, I can choose more closely what's relevant to me. And while that might mean you're reaching a smaller audience, is it going to have a stronger resonance and impact then on those people? Well, there is a bit of a debate at the moment. So I was at, I was at a conference the other day and we were talking about ad blocking. Um, and you know, depending on who you speak to, ad blocking is like a major, major problem, or it's just a little diversion we don't have to worry about. Um, and I think that one of the ways to avoid people wanting to block your ads is personalization. I do, I do think there is a future that would involve you actually welcoming those ads into your, I, I say ads because that's effectively what they are. Yep. It, could be, it could be entertainment, it could be anything, it could be information, but let's call it ads for the sake of argument. There has to be a future where you would actually not use an ad blocker because the ads that are being served up to you are so relevant or so interesting or so entertaining that actually you're welcoming them into your life. Now we're quite a long way away from that. So whatever people say about data and the power of AI, you only have to look at your own feed to know mm. this isn't this isn't sophisticated enough. You know, you just, enough. On, in your daily life, you know, you buy a pair of trousers, then you're served up a whole load of ads about trousers. Yeah. I've just bought my trousers. <laughs> you know, this is the wrong way around. Yeah. However, I do think that as as these as these tools become more sophisticated, that is the future. That personalization has to be the future because ultimately. Um, if it's not, then people will just continue to switch off. What do you think about uh, another thing that's been coming out recently is just people's attention span being so quicker. And as again, I was at an event and they were saying about Facebook ads, for example, you know, you need to get the impact up front, tell them what the movie is very, very quickly when it's coming out and stuff. I sort of thought in a way it's quite sad that now all of that has to be compacted so quickly to, to have an impact on me. And then I recently saw that, that Heineken advert um, have you seen the Heineken with mm. them around the bar? And I thought that was great. And that was much longer, longer form. And I just hope that there's a bit of a balance in the landscape of creativity, what happens, and it doesn't all go to this instantaneous fix that it seems that... Yeah, I'm not, I'm not sure if that's anything new, you know. People talk about how there's no tension span anymore and all of that. But, you know, ads were 30 seconds. 30 seconds isn't very long. Mm. But, you know, historically, that's what they were, 30-second ads, bang, bang, bang. You know, some of them even shorter. Um, 
that didn't mean there wasn't room for two and a half hour long films. Yeah. But all long form has not been as popular as short form. So if you look at media, for instance, the broadsheet newspapers are not as popular as the tabloid newspapers. And I worked in a tabloid for a while. Writing short stories is really, really difficult. I mean, it's a real skill to be able to boil a story down. But that's what tabloids do. They're about attention. They're about the ability for people to concentrate and boiling stuff down right to a pithy, pithy storyline. They sell a lot more, even now, than the broadsheets with 2,000 word articles. So I'm not sure that this thing about attention is necessarily anything hmm. new. So I don't know if you can, but without naming names, like what an example that you've seen that someone taking advantage of all these challenges and these changes from an advertising perspective and doing it really, really well. And then following off of that, what's an example where you actually think it hasn't been done well and is slightly not adapting to, to the times? Well, we're particularly interested in creativity because at Can Lions, we believe that there is a correlation. In fact, we've measured it and done quite a lot of research and um, have a lot of evidence to prove that creative output will not only sell you more stuff, but actually impact the value of your, of your organization. So we have an award at Cannes called the Creative Marketers of the Year Award, which used to be called the Advertiser of the Year Award. And there's a lot of evidence that those winners, the, the, the companies that have won that award, um, have much superior results, that their stock prices are stronger, more robust, that they're beating their competitors, that they're beating their historics. Um, so the link between creativity and business success is really quite a strong link. So we, we kind of really understand that. So what happens is that we are approached regularly by brands who, how they open the conversation is one day we want to win advertiser of the year. We want to win creative marketer of the year. So we want to be more creative. And it's very interesting to see the two groups because there are those who say they're going to do it. So to give you an example, McDonald's came and they said, we're going to do this. And five years later, they did it. Uh, Samsung was the same. Um, Coca-Cola did the same thing versus people who come and have that conversation. So there's a, there's a very large brand that I won't name who has come to, who came to me about eight years ago, maybe even longer, nine years ago, said we want to win Marketer of the Year at Cannes. So I talked a bit about what the people who had done it had done and the steps they put in place to win that. So they listened and they went away. And then four years later, it was a new marketing director, the same business, new marketing director contacted me said, we want to win Marketer of the Year, what do we have to do? And it's really fascinating to see the difference between the organizations who can do it and those who can't do it. Most of them want to do it. So mo most of the marketers we meet are really clear that creativity is going to make a difference. It's then a question of actually how do you implement it? So here's a, a few interesting points that roll off that. One... It sounds like, well, let's start. What do you tell them? What do they, what do they have to do? And the, the question I was going to ask was, it sounds like it takes a little bit of time to implement and really enact that. It doesn't sound like it's something that you, it's not a cheat sheet that can just be turned around in a, yeah. In a year. So yeah, if we could drill down into. Yeah, uh, well, well, it takes, uh, takes several years, three or four years. I mean, McDonald's was interesting because we kind of tracked it from the time they said right. they wanted to do it to the time that they won the award. 
uh, it was five years. Um, but it's about it's about all the things you would imagine it's about. It's about what language are we using within our organisation. So how are we actually embedding the fact that we do value creativity? What partners are we working with? So let's look at our advertising agency partners and our other partners and how important is creativity to them and how are we incentivizing them. Um, it's how, how we're measuring it. So if you take Heineken, Heineken have got a really, really clear and strict structure for how they improve their output. And one thing they do, for instance, is they look at all of their global work together. So they get their senior marketing team together with some of their advertising agency partners and they rate every single piece of work. Hmm. And they've got a, a, a rating system uh, from kind of legendary world ch changing to, you know, absolutely terrible. Um, and they want every single piece of work to be in the upper quartile of that, of, of that system. It's about how you compensate people. So it's all very well saying... Uh, we really value creativity, but are you actually letting people take risks and do different things? And then with global organizations, it's about how you're aligning the... What we see quite often with global organizations is the center really believe in this. So the, the head office really believe in it. They send a bunch of people to Cannes. Creativity is right at the top of their agenda. If you then go to one of their regions, so you might go to Germany... Those people are not incentivized. They never get sent to Cannes. Never creativity is never discussed. So it's not driven down the entire organization. So depending on the, um, depending on the scale of the organization, there are, you, know, you have to have... Nobody has ever improved their creative output at Cannes and won more lions by accident. So whether it's a client or an agency, there is always a strategy. Um, and probably, I suppose, if I had to choose the most important element of it, it would be, um, it would be the, the measurement, having a measurement system that we all agree with. So this piece of work is derivative or this piece of work is, is not breakthrough enough. Why isn't it? How do we improve it? I think that's probably the single most important thing. Do you see there being consistent measurements now taking place? across companies or is that still very much a company centric thing They're, no they are quite consistent actually they you know the, as i say the heineken one which is in the public domain is a really a really superb tool but actually when you see when you talk to other clients they all have something really quite similar to that um and and the other thing that the successful ones do is that they don't try and change the world totally in one go so they won't say to all of their offices and all of their marketers all over the world, from Monday morning, we are going to be a creative company. They're much smarter than that. So if you take Unilever, what Unilever do, they've got hundreds of brands, absolutely hundreds of brands. But what they do is they take one or two of the hero brands, in their case, Lynx and Dove, and they expect Lynx and Dove to be the inspiration for the rest of the brands. So what they say to the rest of brands is, look, this is what's possible. Now, obviously, you might not be able to get the kind of success that they get, but this is what we can do as a business. And every year they expect one or two more of their brands to win a line at Cannes. And so they don't say to all 300 brands, unless you win a line at Cannes, you're fired. Right. But they do, they focus, or they focus on a particular geography. So they might say, do you know what, we can do some really interesting experimentation here in Singapore. 
And the other thing they do, which I could talk about this for a long time, but um, the other thing that these successful organizations do is they, they, will take, they, will, they will take a portion of their budget just for experimentation. So they skim off the top and they effectively say, if this doesn't work, we don't care. It, you know, we're not going to risk our TV spend in North America because that's too scary. Yep. But what we might do is we've got an innovation pot for Singapore or for Bangalore or for Johannesburg, and we're going to try something really interesting that if it works, we can then scale out. So there are a number of different techniques people use. And it sounds like that's been quite consistent in what you've been saying over time. But I guess one question is, has it got harder for them to be creative with the fact that as you said you know like you've seen the landscape change more in the year than the last 10 years for example is creativity now harder for them i don't think it's no i don't think it is harder because i think i think in many ways you've got more tools at your disposal and you've got more partners that you can work with you've got more channels to market you've got more formats that you can use um i don't think no i don't i, I don't i don't think creativity is more difficult than it has been in the past what we do see is um, a really strong desire for for creativity for marketers. So the number of marketers that come to Cannes is con consistently increasing, and right. this year will be another record um, from all over the world and all sorts of different seniority positions, because I think they understand that to get genuine breakthrough, particularly in, in that world that we were describing before with a proliferation of platforms and whatnot, um, to get breakthrough, you've just got to be creative. In a sense, I wonder, do you think that when all these increased channels came out, all these new methods of communication that required increased volume of content, did maybe for a little while creativity take a slight backseat as people panic to fill the volume of these channels and now it's come back to the forefront and mainly i feel is that partly driven by actual startup consumer brands that kind of stole a march on some of the larger brands because all of a sudden they could advertise anywhere in the world through these channels and didn't require the multi-million pound budgets that a large brand would once previously require for tv or or print and actually for those smaller brands creativity was at the heart of what do they stand for? What's their story? How can they resonate with consumers? And actually, you've had this this wealth of startup consumer brands go and grab opportunities. Yeah, I think I think that's possible. But I think I think actually the thing that surprises me more than anything is how consistently the desire for creativity is within the marketing community. Because if you think about a marketer now, like I said before, they've got to worry about how are they going to manage their data? They've got to worry about how they can leverage that data. There must be some way we can leverage this data. How are we going to use that? We've got to understand the new platforms. We have to understand user experience. And depending on the brand, if you're a retail brand, that's everything from digital to physical user experience. Um, you know, the, 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 the role and, and the responsibilities of the CMO is absolutely massive and getting bigger every day. Creativity is only a part of that. But what amazes me is how front and center it is still despite all of this plethora of, of, of complexity and difficulty because they've got a lot of things to worry about huge amount of things to worry about and yet I meet really I mean I, I met a huge advertiser in Cannes last year it surprises me I didn't know this actually about them but I met them and I said you know how's your how's your week been and they said oh, it's been great we've, we've won lots of 
lions. And they said, you know, it's good because our people are going to get their bonuses. <laughs> now, agencies are bonused on winning lions. Mm, but clients to be bonused on winning lions. I mean, that is really quite a shift. What do you suspect might change in agency land over the next couple of years? I think the, 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 as a sort of impartial observer, I think the fascinating battle is going to be what, what are the consultancies going to do? Because even a year ago, right, even a year ago, the consultancies were playing around the edges. You know, they made a couple of acquisitions yep. and they were trying to sort of do this and that. But this year, I mean, for instance, with their engagement at Cannes, so they're all, they all want to be engaged, all of them. They all want to win Lions. They all want to. And their offering is, is quite a different offering because they're coming from a slightly different place from the agencies. You know, they're coming from that consulting side. They do organizational transformation. They do digital transformation and they do all of that stuff. They do user experience. And then they're saying, oh, by the way, we can also do your comms. The agencies, of course, fundamentally based on comms, are coming the other way. So we were talking before the podcast started. I don't like naming names, but um, I will do anyway. RGA. Mm -hmm. So RGA is an amazing agency because they've shifted with the times very successfully. And I think they can see what's happening. So they're building consultancy into their offering, coming out of what they currently do to try build that out. So the, the, the really interesting battle will be in three or four years' time, how's that landscape going to look? And I think it could look quite different um, depending on the ambition of the consultancies. So their ambition could be everything from we're going to buy one of the holding companies to we're going to disintermediate the holding companies to we're just going to be competitors with the holding companies. We'll see what happens. You know, the Vivendi, the Vivendi acquisition of Havas, I mean, it wasn't exactly it wasn't a surprise because of the, 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 the Bellore thing. But it was interesting that an, a, a, an entertainment company now owns a holding company. So could you see a situation where a consultancy owns a holding company? Yeah, you, you definitely mm. could. Could you see a situation where a holding company owns a consultancy? Yeah, although the consultancies are a lot bigger on the whole than the holding companies. So I think that battle for, um, for who's providing what it is a massive change. It's a really significant change. And uh, I think that will be what's very interesting in the next few years. And what do you think, going back to the example we were talking about earlier with FHM and Lab Bible, what do you think about in the marketplace room for something like that to be, be happening? Uh, I don't think it's quite the same. Bec and the reason I say that is because... Um, if you're an agency, so if you're an if you're sort of classic advertising agency, you do have the ability to be much more nimble and flexible. It's slightly different because if you're a medium, I'm the medium of magazines. You're you're much more stuck, and finding ways to do things differently is actually very very hard. As we're seeing with newspapers mm. as well, they're trying they're trying all sorts of different models. I think you're much more stuck. But if you're an agency, so you're a talent, you're a talent company. So then it's just a question of well, what, what talent should we get in? You know, if we, if we need UX people, if we need 
consultants, if we need organizational design people, if we need transformation people, we'll just get that talent in and then we can offer that service. So I, I think it is slightly different. I think there's everything to play for. Fascinating. What, uh, what keeps you up at night about the space? It's keeping up with those changes. Yeah. So if we look at the history of Cannes, uh, it started off as an advertising agency event. Then the clients came. Then the platforms came. So Google, Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, mm. all of these people came. The startups started coming. Latterly, the entertainment companies have started to come. So, I mean, we haven't touched on that, but you know, we've got Hollywood studios, TV companies, <laughs> music companies coming to the festival in numbers never before. Um, and then now we've got the consultancies. So we got. So what keeps me up at night is how are we going to adapt to all of these changes while maintaining the core of our brand essence, which is that creativity drives business. Because we, we could shift in any particular direction, but we have to keep that core. We are about why being creative is good for your business. And all of this maelstrom of change that's going around, we need to shift and adapt to it and face the market the way the market's going without losing the heart of what we do. And that's, that's a very difficult balancing act sometimes. So you say keeping the heart of it is what will make you succeed because otherwise you might go into something that you're not, but you yeah. have to be willing to change probably more rapidly than ever before to, to keep up. Yeah, Genuinely makes for an exciting time, but I imagine yeah. a slightly nervous time yeah. as well for the whole industry trying to just keep up with things. Absolutely, that's right. Perfect. Well, Phil, really appreciate it. We've got to finish off with a quick fire okay. uh, around now. So best business book you've ever read? Um, probably I've just read one actually called actually no I'll go back to a classic I think Who Moved My Cheese is probably my favourite okay very short and very good name someone who's inspired you the most um, I think I'm very inspired by Malala I know that is a bit of a cliche but I think she's an extraordinary human being and extremely inspirational favourite band uh, I think my favourite band is he's not a band but he's Bob Dylan good choice favourite movie it's got to be The Godfather okay one two or three or the whole <laughs> the whole just, series just number one just number one uh, if you didn't work in this industry what else would you be doing I would be a Nobel Prize winning novelist cool <laughs> what's a tiny thing that annoys you the most um, people walking slowly in London. Right, okay. I might be one of those people. I hate people rushing around too much <laughs> in London. I don't think I walk slowly, though. If you had a time machine, when and where would you go to? Um, I, would, I would actually, at the moment, having just read an amazing piece of writing about my great-grandfather that I managed to find through a cousin, and they were talking about my great-grandfather's life and <laughs> what it was like. Uh, I would go back there to see if it was un as unbelievably grim as it seems to have been. Really? Yeah, people dying of cholera and, you know, just incredible. I would go back just to see, was this what it was really like? Wow. Yeah. Writing's always been in the family. Yeah, that's that right. sounds it. Yeah. And then, uh, if you were running for office, what would your campaign slogan be? Um, live and let live. 
It's the anti-Trump. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, and then since we're in the whale room, which is an amazing setting to be in given uh, whaler, beluga, blue, humpback, or killer whale? Um, I think blue whales are very special, aren't they? Aren't they the biggest living thing on the planet that's ever so. lived? Yeah. That's pretty cool. I normally just watch if people can hold back saying kill a whale. <laughs> <as well. laughs> yeah. Phil, thanks for your time. Really appreciate it. Thanks very much. Thanks for listening to The Whaler Podcast. Be sure to check out the next episode where I'm chatting to Scylla Snowball, the group chairman and group CEO of AMV BBDO.